please be with me and please be with the church as we discuss you and, and what you're all about, Lord. And please help us to be moved by your spirit throughout this, throughout this sermon. In your name we pray, amen. You know, the, the sermon title is God's Theologian. But before we get to God's Theologian, we have to talk about what is theology. Theology is a Greek word. You break it down into two. Theo means God. Ology means study, study of God. Now, theology was a very important part of education, certainly in America, up to just over 100 years ago. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, these schools were all theological seminaries. And they had a belief, a proper belief, that if that theology was the cornerstone of education, that science and philosophy all led from theology, that if you didn't understand theology, all the other, all other education became somewhat useless. And they had a very firm understanding of this, and that's why these schools were what they were. Obviously, you're not going to find that in Harvard, Princeton, and Yale today, but that's how they were started. Now, what theology is, is your understanding of God, your understanding of how you relate to God. And you have to ask yourself, when it comes to your theology, what do I believe and why do I believe it? It's a crucial question to ask yourself because most of us are born into some form of a denomination that has a theology that is taught to you. And then after it's taught to you, you believe it and you pass it on. But you have to always try to get to the bottom of why you, understand, why you believe it and why you understand it. We, we could look at some extreme examples of theology gone wrong. Radical Muslim theology teaches that the Quran is the word of God and the proper reading according to them of the Quran is anybody who's not Muslim needs to be eliminated. You either forcibly become Muslim or you need to be done away with. That, they believe that in the bottom of their hearts. They're not doing it just to be mean. This is their belief in their theology. I'm trying to move a little closer to where we are, Mormons. Mormons believe that Joseph Smith is the basis of their faith, that he wrote the Book of Mormon, or had a big contribution to the Book of Mormon, and that the Book of Mormon and the Bible have to live hand in hand. But the Bible has to be distorted to fit within their theology. Now, many Christian beliefs, Christian faiths do the same thing. They come up with a dogma and a set of beliefs, and they twist the Bible in order to fit those beliefs. Now, it's not just the extreme cases that I gave you. Um, you have Catholic theology, which is based upon 2,000 years of Catholic, the canons of the Catholicism. Methodist theology is based upon a great man named John Wesley, but it's still based upon his teaching. Now, all mainstream faiths have their slant on theology. They just do. Somebody came up with something they found significant in faith, and they passed it on, and they taught that to be the, the basis of whatever denomination you're talking about. The problem with theology is, if your theology's wrong, then you don't understand Jesus. And if you don't understand Jesus, you don't understand the only point of our salvation. 
The true Jesus is what is the basis for our salvation. The true Jesus can be found in scripture. The true Jesus is not found in any dogma of any faith. Now, most, like I say, most denominations try to squeeze the Bible into their, their faith and their beliefs. But that's truly the tail wagging the dog. Now, what is the greatest threat to Christianity? It is not oppression, a worldly oppression. Oppression makes us stronger. The history shows us that. The greatest threat to Christian faith is false teaching within the church. That has always been the greatest threat to faith. In fact, that's why we had a Protestant Reformation. Now, Satan's best tool is to attack the character of Jesus. His first tool is get your eyes off Jesus. If you're not in the church, keep their eyes off Jesus. That's, Satan is a great theologian, and he knows the only way to your salvation is Jesus. So rule number one for Satan, get your eyes off Jesus. Get you in drugs, alcohol, sex, your work, whatever. Keep their eyes off Jesus. If your eyes get on Jesus, his next point of attack is distort who Jesus is. Distort what he represents. Distort his character. And then you're not worshiping the true Jesus. Now, this is why the Reformation happened in the 16th century. Because we had a faith that had gone so far off the tracks that Thank goodness Brother Martin Luther came and got it back on the tracks. Now, I wasn't able to go to Sabbath school today, and I hope Brother Wallace did not distort my man Luther. Did you do okay on that, Jim? Because <laughs> Luther is one of the greatest theologians of all time. Now, at the heart of every single belief, every single denomination, is a theologian. And if that theologian studied the Bible or some other source, came up with a belief in faith, and then created a domination surround, wrapped around that. Two big problems happen there. Number one, if the theology is wrong, that's a problem. If the theology is wrong, that's a problem. But number two, as people, it leads to spiritual arrogance and elitism. And that's not the, the church that Christ created. Christ created a church that includes all followers of Christ who believe that his shed blood is how we are get, is what is our salvation, is our justification. The shed blood of Christ and that sacrifice. That's his church. But all Christian faiths like to point at each other, you do this wrong, you do that wrong, we're smarter, we're better, we're more holy. And that's not the church of God. Now, over the centuries, there's had to, God had theologians come to us to get us on track. And there, there's a, quite a list of them, but um, I picked the five best. Well, the ones I think are best. Augustine. Augustine in the uh, fourth century, Augustine came along. And Augustine, by, it only took us a couple hundred years to get off track. And Augustine kept, had said, okay, let's get back on track, church. Where you're off the rails again. And he read scripture, and he brought them back to scripture. His writings are the basis for most of the Christian theology today, all mainline Christian theology, could trace back a lot to Augustine. Thomas Aquinas. I, I couldn't find a picture without the cool heart thing, but I wanted to. Um, Thomas Aquinas was another guy, great, great theologian, 
tried to get us back on track. And I, I love a story about Thomas Aquinas. Um, he was called to Rome when he, he was in the uh, 13th century. And he was called to Rome, and the Pope was very proud of what Rome had done. And he turned to Thomas, and Thomas was one of his great guys. He said, Thomas, look, we no longer have to say silver and gold have we none. To which Thomas replied, that's probably why we no longer can say stand up and walk. And um, oh, Thomas, he, he's one guy who could get away talking to the Pope like that. Um, but then, like I said, my favorite, Martin Luther. Martin Luther came along in the 16th century, and the Catholic Church had gone so far off the rails that his first effort was to try to save the church, and when he couldn't, the greatest split in church history occurred. The split occurred because Luther was unwilling to surrender the word of Scripture to church tradition. And they said to Luther, who are you? Who, what, who, how do you put yourself in a position to tell us after 1,500 years of his time, 1,500 years of tradition, 1,500 years of, of, of the Pope making law, and you, who are you to do this? And he just went back to Scripture. He said, this is what the Scripture says, and if you guys can't go there, then, then we have to break away. Jonathan Edwards, 18th century, United States. Um, the Encyclopedia Britannica dubs Jonathan Edwards as the greatest intellect in American history, not greatest theologian, but the greatest intellect in American history. Jonathan Edwards was another guy who went back to, the, to those before and steered us back. And then finally, Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is the one guy that most modern pastors copy and, and mimic. Um, I don't know if our pastor would admit that, but um, many pastors from Alistair Begg to Tyson Lemke. Who's Tyson Lemke? Tyson Lemke was Megan's pastor back in Michigan. So I, I'm going to give him some love. Um, Tyson Lemke shamelessly admitted that he, uh, he parrots Spurgeon, as does Alistair Begg, who's a great teacher of our time. Now, some may argue that the list I just gave you should have other theologians in it. And I'm sure there's other theologians you could put on this list, but they would be bench players on this team. As far as I'm concerned, this is the cream of the crop of, of theologians. But the question then becomes, I heard a sermon said, who's the greatest theologian of them all? And my mind started racing. I said, wow, it's probably Luther. But then Luther read Augustine. Maybe it's Augustine. I was a fool. I was wrong. The greatest theologian of all time is Paul the Apostle. Hands down. And you know what all five of these guys I just gave you did? They studied Paul. And they understood Paul's theology. And they followed Paul. They didn't do anything new. They just steered the church back the best they could, some more successful than others, back to Paul's theology. Now, Paul was not only the greatest theologian of all time, he was the greatest pastor of all time. He's the greatest evangelical of all time. He was the greatest teacher of all time. He's the greatest preacher of all time. Paul was the best. And why was Paul the best? He was handpicked by God himself. Jesus Christ himself handpicked Paul as my theologian. Now, the reason I'm calling Paul a theologian is because he was the first post-Jesus theologian. The Gospels tells the story of the God himself coming down from heaven, taking on human flesh, and demolishing the theology of the day. 
He demolished the legalist theology of the Pharisees. He, when he left this earth, theology was in shambles because everything they believed had been destroyed by Jesus. Everything. And now God required a theologian to explain what it all meant. And that theologian is Paul the Apostle, handpicked by God himself. Now, Paul's theology is found in two books of the Bible. Now, you, many will argue that it's found throughout all of his letters. But the place, there's two places where he said, this is the theology of the church, Romans and Galatians. Um, their other letters are instructional with some theology, but the two books that said, this is the theology, this is the meaning what Christ's life did, this is what it's all about, Romans, Galatians. Now, you're going to hear a sermon series in a couple weeks that pastors are going to start, um, which is uh, the book of Romans, and that's going to be an awesome thing. And the purpose of today's sermon is to give you an introduction to the author of the book of Romans, Paul. Now, before I go there, I just want to make a little parenthetical comment here. Um, you know when you do relay teams, you always put your worst guy third? You know, when you have a relay, you always run the second fastest guy runs first, third fastest guy runs second, third, and the fastest guy runs last. Well, I just realized that four elders are preaching, and I'm the third. <laughs> I think I'm the weak link. <laughs> hey, but I'll, I'll, I'll hand off the baton. I'll hand it off, IMRs. You, you close it for us. Um, but um, now, who, who is Paul? Church tradition teaches that Paul was born the same year as Jesus. If, if church tradition is inaccurate, it's pretty close. He was born Saul, a Jew in Tarsus. Tarsus is a city on the southeast tip of Asia Minor, northwest of Israel. It was on a major trade route. It was a big deal city. It was an important city with regard to trade, wealth, economy, and education. Paul's dad was a merchant, and he was granted Roman citizenship. Now, we don't know what Paul's dad did to get Roman citizenship, but it must have been big. But since he was a Roman citizen, Saul became a Roman citizen. That became significant as you read through the book of Acts and the, and the books of the um, New Testament. Now, there was a saying at the time Paul was born and was raised that if you don't train your son in a trade, you train him to be a thief. And Paul was trained to be a tent maker. Now, I've heard a lot of stuff about, um, you know, through sermons and whatnot and, uh, since I've been reading the Bible and understanding it, that tent making was beneath Paul and that, you know, being a tent maker was unclean. All this is nonsense. Tent making was a cool job. Tent making, you made money. Because in those days, you didn't have hotels. There were places to stay when you got from city to city, but on your journey, if you're wealthy, on your journey, you'd have to stop sometimes. You needed cool tents. Paul made tents very lucrative, very lucrative job for him. And it turned out to be very helpful to him in, as he worked his way as a pastor making tents. Um, pastor, you ever make tents for us? No? Um, now, Tarsus had one of the greatest universities in the world. In fact, had the greatest university in the world at the time. 
So it drew in intellectuals from all around the world. It was a great city of wealth. It was on the Mediterranean. It's a, it was a big deal city. And it drew in all these intellectuals. They have discussions about politics, about religion, about, you know, about faith. And what they would do is sit down with Paul, young Paul, and he immediately dis- uh, displayed an incredible intellectual capacity. So at the age of 13... Paul was sent to Jerusalem to study under the greatest theologian of their time, Gamaliel. By 21 years old, Paul had earned the equivalent of two PhDs in theology. He was the most educated Jew in Palestine. He, everybody knew Paul. He was the rising star. He was the man. He was, he was the young Jack Kennedy. He was it. Well, that's probably a bad, bad analogy. Um, I don't know where that came from. It's not even my notes. Disregard I said that. He wasn't the young Jack. <laughs> um, at any rate, he was being groomed to be the leader of the Sanhedrin, the group who condemned Jesus. Now, you have to understand about young Paul. He was all in. He believed wholeheartedly that Judaism was right, Christianity was wrong, and much like the Muslims we just talked about, either you believed in Judaism or you should be put in prison or killed. And Paul was all in. He believed that wholeheartedly. And he, he took a great hand in making that happen. Now, our first exposure to Paul in the Bible is at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Paul was a co-conspirator in his murder, and gladly so. In fact, his first exposure is in Acts 7, 57, 58. At this, they covered their ears. Remember when Stephen just drove them crazy with his great pronouncement of the gospel to them? At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. That's pretty mature, those guys, huh? Um, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Our first exposure to our hero, is he's the, he's the worst guy on the planet. Now, Paul carried this guilt to his grave. Now, he realized later, through understanding the teachings of Jesus, he understood that he was completely forgiven. He understood that Christ erased everything. But if you read his letters, he carried this burden the rest of his life. Now, He was also, at the time, the greatest oppressor of Christians. He would do anything to oppress. He killed them. He put them in prison. He took their homes away. He went went to get authority. Now, one thing you have to appreciate about him at this time, there is nothing in history or scripture that would tell you that Paul was an egotist, ever. Paul believed he was right. Paul's theology was wrong. And when your theology is wrong, bad things happen. Now, many people before and after Paul have had bad theology and did bad things that they thought were for the right reasons. The thing you have to do to be sure your theology is correct is confirm it with a proper reading of Scripture God's theology, which is found in Romans and Galatians. Now, Paul was selected by God 
before the creation of man before time to fulfill this role. Now, Paul was perfect for this job. He was the most educated Jew in Palestine. He knew the Old Testament is what he knew the law. He knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. And people struggle all the time. They say, well, I read the Old Testament, and I read the New Testament, and I can't reconcile them. Paul did. Read Paul. Paul is the greatest expert on both of those portions of the Bible, both Testaments. Now, Jesus forced Paul to face his conversion. Now, the story of Paul's conversion is told twice in the um, book of Acts. First in chapter 9, and then in cha- where Luke recites the story of the conversion, then in chapter 26, where Paul tells about his own conversion. Chapter 26 is where I'm going because, and I'll tell you why in a second. This is Paul talking to King Agrippa. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, O king is his reference to Agrippa, As I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now, the reason I took the chapter 26 version is because a chapter 9 version doesn't have the kicking against the goads line. Luke didn't recite that line there. But many of your translations, the translators took some liberties and pulled that line and put it in chapter 9 because they knew Paul said it later about his own experience, but I think we have to be honest with the Bible. So whoever has those, cross that line out of your Bible, whoever has the versions that do that. Um, Now, this is an incredible story. Because, as you recall, Paul was, just got commissioned from the chief priest to go get some um, bad Christians in Damascus. And he's on his horse, and he's riding, he's going to go get them. Significant issues here. At noon, the sun is brightest at noon. A brilliant light flashes. And the Greek translation is, the light is as bright as a lightning flash. So this lightning flash flashes around them brighter than anything at the time. Another huge part of this story is the way Jesus addresses him. Saul, Saul. You see many times throughout the Bible the double knock, which is Martha, Martha, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You see it throughout the Bible. It is a really endearing reference. Whenever whenever the Bible uses the double knock, the double name, it's, it's always a very close and personal thing and you know Paul says who are you Lord (laughs) because he knows he knows it's something big and he says it's Jesus whom you're persecuting so we know the story gets made blind goes into um, gets taken into town and sits there blind for three days refuses food and water now can you imagine went on went on for those three days this ultra expert of the Old Testament This guy who knew the Old Testament backwards and forward, all the lights started going on. 
It is Jesus. It is all about Jesus. Jesus is our salvation. He's our only way to salvation. It is the shed blood of Jesus that saves us and nothing else. And the whole Old Testament teaches that. That's why he was perfect for the job. He got it. And, you know, the Bible tells us that immediately he went and argued with the Jews and proved. I wish I had the verse. He proved through scripture that Jesus was a Messiah and confounded the Jewish leaders. Now, he realized the wrath of God that he always believed in was real. But then he realized the most important part of it. Jesus took the wrath of God for us. It wasn't up to him to put the wrath of God on the Christians following Jesus. That was completely upside down. Now, the message became clear as a bell to Paul. We are saved by faith alone. That has been the most difficult concept to get across to Christians from the time of Paul to the time of today. We are saved by faith alone. That confounds people to no end because what it does is it takes control of your salvation away from you and gives it to him. No, but I do all this good stuff. I'm a good person. No, you're not. The Bible teaches us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one righteous person in this building. There's not one righteous person on this planet. Your righteousness comes from Christ and Christ alone. And when you get to that point, you've now understood the theology of Paul. Now, God's hand-picked theologian, Paul, is, puts his theology down on paper in the Book of Romans and in Galatians. But I'm going to just do a high-level flyover of Romans right now to give you the, the repeated theme of Paul over and over. Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Pretty, pretty clear. Romans 4.5, However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 10.4. Christ is the culmination of the law, so there, may, so there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. 11.6. And, and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Now, it's important to understand the significance of these verses as far as why we are here today. We are here today because Martin Luther read, and you love this, how God brings it all together. Martin Luther was asked to give a study on Romans, and he started studying Romans. And who did he pick up to study about Romans? But the patron saint of his denomination, Augustine. He started reading Augustine's writings, and he said, oh my goodness, I better check this out. He picked up Romans, and he read it, and that is the message that came loud and clear crashing through the door. 
we are justified by faith alone. Martin Luther later said that justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. That's how important it is. Now, I'll give you one more. We'll go to Galatians. Um, Martin Luther called the book of Galatians his Katie Von Bora. That was his wife's name. Galatians 2.16. Know that a person who is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, the problem that we run into is our humanity and our ego and our pride, because we can't accept the simplicity of this message. We can't accept that there is nothing you can do to earn your salvation other than have faith in the one who did it for you. And that is the hardest part for everyone because we're trained from a very early age. If you do good stuff, you get rewards. If you do bad stuff, you get punished. If you work hard, you get a good job, you get the A. Therefore, if I become a good Christian and I work at VBS and I feed homeless and I go to the jail and I, and I, I do every possible thing I can, God's going to say, you're such a good guy, Bob. You've earned your way in here. That's not how it works. There is nothing we can do to deserve our salvation. We are undeserving and unworthy. It is through the deepest, deepest love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we have any right to salvation. Now, that's why it's such a tough pill to swallow. Now, if your theology conflicts with this, your theology is wrong. If any theology conflicts with this, your, that theology is wrong. Now, when you go through the Roman series, you will hear God's theology through Paul's teaching, through the capable hands of our great pastor. And the message is clear. The message is clear to us that Christ came to save us from ourselves because we can't do it. And just because you put on a nice suit and come to church, you're no better off than the bum in the street who didn't. The only thing that makes you different from him is you understand the salvation through Christ Jesus. And the, your job is to convey that message to him, not to condemn him and hate him for it. Now, that is the message of, of Paul and Paul alone. And that is the message of God through Paul alone. Every other theology has to comply with that. This is my favorite. Paul makes it pretty clear what we should do if we stray from that course. But if even we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be under God's curse. Significant. Huge. If an angel from heaven or me, he said, even if I tell you something different than this, let me be accursed. That's huge. That's big. He, he was so, so understanding of it. Let us always, always, Adventist family, let us always be willing 
to be sure our theology and our teaching is in line with Paul's, because we sure don't want to be accursed. We want to follow God's theologian, Paul.